0: Section 9 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26. Lincoln's Search for a General. The failure of McClellan in the Peninsular Campaign not only forced the Emancipation Proclamation from Lincoln, it set him to working on a fresh set of military problems. The most important of these was a search for a competent general-in-chief for the armies of the United States. As has already been noted, General McClellan had been appointed General-in-Chief in July 1861, after the First Battle of Bull Run. A few months' experience had demonstrated to the administration that, able as McClellan was in forming an army and inspiring his soldiers, he lacked the ability to direct a great concerted movement, extending over so long a line as that from the Mississippi to the Atlantic. In March, when he took the field at the head of the Army of the Potomac, the President relieved him from the command of all military departments except that of the Department of the Potomac. From March to July 1862, Lincoln had no general-in-chief. He felt so keenly his need of an experienced military counselor that towards the end of June he made a hurried and secret visit to General Scott, who, since he had been superseded by McClellan, had been in retirement. One result of his visit to McClellan at Harrison's Landing in July was to fix Lincoln's determination to have in Washington a general-in-chief of all the armies who could supplement his own meager knowledge of military matters, and who could aid him in forming judgments. He knew that in the campaign against Richmond, he had, at more than one critical moment, made decisions which were contrary to McClellan's plans. He knew that McClellan claimed that these decisions had caused his failure. He had acted to the best of his judgment in every case, but he undoubtedly felt the danger in a civilian's taking such a responsibility. He wanted a man at his side whom he believed was wiser than he in these matters. So far, the war had brought out but one man who seemed to him at all fit for this work, Major General H.W. Halleck, the commander of the Department of the Mississippi. On his return to Washington from his visit to McClellan, almost the first act of the President was to summon Halleck to Washington as General-in-Chief. Halleck was a West Point man, highly regarded by General Scott, who had been appointed to take charge of the Department of the West after Fremont's failure there. He had shown such vigor in his field in the winter of eighteen sixty-one, sixty-two, that, in March, when McClellan was relieved of the position of General-in-Chief, a new department, including all the Mississippi region west of Knoxville, Tennessee, was given to Halleck. Since that time, he had succeeded in opening the Mississippi with the aid of the gunboats as far south as Memphis halleck was appointed on july eleventh and soon after his arrival in washington he went to harrison's landing to look over mcclellan's situation he found mcclellan determined to make another attack on richmond after he received reinforcements halleck disapproved of the idea He believed that McClellan should return to the Potomac and unite with the new Army of Virginia, which had just been formed of the troops around Washington and placed under the direction of General John Pope, another product of the Mississippi campaign, from whom the president hoped great things. McClellan persistently fought this plan, and his removal was seriously discussed at this time. The great body of the Republican Party indeed demanded it, Many did not hesitate to say that McClellan was a traitor, only waiting the proper opportunity to surrender his army to the enemy, an accusation which never had other foundation than McClellan's obstinacy and procrastination. Lincoln would not relieve him. He believed him loyal. He knew that no man could be better loved by his soldiers or more capable of putting an army into form. He had no one to put in his place. There was a political reason, too. McClellan was a Democrat. The party took his view of the disastrous Peninsular campaign, that Mr. Lincoln had not supported him. To remove him was to arouse bitter Democratic opposition, and so to decrease the support of the Union cause and, at this juncture, to hold as solid a North as possible to the war was quite as imperative as to win a battle. Lincoln would not relieve McClellan— but he sanctioned the plan for a change of base from the James to the Potomac, and early in March, McClellan was ordered to move his army. He continued to struggle against the movement, believing he could, if reinforced, capture Richmond, and when forced to yield, he made the movement with delay and ill-humor. The withdrawal of McClellan freed Lee's army, and the Confederate general marched quickly northward against the Army of Virginia under General Pope. On August 30th, Lee defeated Pope in the Second Battle of Bull Run, a defeat scarcely less discouraging to the Federals than the first Bull Run had been, and one that caused almost as great a panic at Washington. Pope was defeated, the country generally believed, because McClellan, who was hardly 20 miles away, did not, in spite of orders, do anything to relieve him. It seemed to Lincoln that McClellan even wanted Pope to fail. The indignation of the Secretary of War and of the majority of the members of the Cabinet was so great against McClellan that a protest against keeping him any longer in command of any force was written by Stanton and signed by three of his colleagues. Major A.E.H. Johnson, the private secretary of Stanton, first published this protest in the Washington Evening Star, March 18, 1893. Mr. Johnson says that the president thought it unwise to publish the document that Mr. Stanton had prepared, but he consented that the following protest should be signed and handed to him as a substitute. The understanding of the cabinet members interested was that this revised protest should go to the country. Mr. Johnson believes that Mr. Lincoln himself wrote this protest. At all events, he is certain that the president consented to it. The undersigned, who have been honored with your selection as part of your confidential advisers, deeply impressed with our great responsibility in the present crisis, do but perform a painful duty in declaring to you our deliberate opinion that, at this time, it is not safe to entrust to Major General McClellan the command of any army of the United States." And we hold ourselves ready, at any time, to explain to you in detail the reasons upon which this opinion is based. In spite of this evident sympathy of Lincoln with the indignation against McClellan, on September 2nd he placed that general in command of all the troops around Washington. Probably no act of his ever angered the Secretary of War so thoroughly. A large part of the North, too, was indignant a general cry went up to the president for a new leader. Lincoln only showed again in this determined and bitterly criticized action his courage in acting in a crisis according to his own judgment. The army under Pope was demoralized. Washington was, perhaps, in danger. The defeat had robbed Pope of confidence. Halleck, worn out with fatigue and anxiety, was beseeching McClellan to come to his relief. There was no other general in the army who could so quickly lick the troops into shape, as Lincoln put it, and man the fortifications around the city. He made the order, and McClellan entirely justified the president's faith in him. He did put the army into form, and was able to follow at once after Lee, who was making for Maryland and Pennsylvania. Overtaking Lee at Antietam, north of the Potomac, McClellan defeated him on September 17th. But to Lincoln's utter despair, he failed to follow up his victory and allowed Lee to get back south of the Potomac River. Nor would he follow him, in spite of Lincoln's reiterated urging. It was this failure to move McClellan's army from camp that sent Lincoln to visit him early in October. He would find out the actual condition of the army, see if, as McClellan complained, it lacked everything and needed rest he found mcclellan with over one hundred thousand men around him. Two days of his visit he spent in the saddle reviewing this force. He visited the hospitals, talked with the men, interviewed the generals, saw everything. What his opinion of the ability of the army to do something was is evident from an order he sent mcclellan the day after he returned to Washington. The president directs that you cross the Potomac and give battle to the enemy or drive him south. This was on October 6th. A week later, McClellan being still in camp, Mr. Lincoln wrote him the following letter. Executive Mansion, Washington, D.C., October 13th, 1862. Major General McClellan. My dear sir, you remember my speaking to you of what I called your overcautiousness. Are you not overcautious when you assume that you cannot do what the enemy is constantly doing? Should you not claim to be at least his equal in prowess and act upon the claim? As I understand, you telegraph General Halleck that you cannot subsist your army at Winchester unless the railroad from Harper's Ferry to that point be put in working order but the enemy does now subsist his army at Winchester at a distance nearly twice as great from railroad transportation as you would have to do without the railroad last named. He now wagons from Culpeper Courthouse, which is just about twice as far as you would have to do from Harper's Ferry. He is certainly not more than half as well provided with wagons as you are. I certainly should be pleased for you to have the advantage of the railroad from Harper's Ferry to Winchester, but it wastes all the remainder of the autumn to give it to you, and in fact ignores the question of time, which cannot and must not be ignored. Again, one of the standard maxims of war, as you know, is to operate upon the enemy's communications as much as possible without exposing your own. You seem to act as if this applies against you, but cannot apply in your favor. Change positions with the enemy, and think you not he would break your communication with Richmond within the next twenty-four hours? If he should move northward, I would follow him closely, holding his communications. If he should prevent our seizing his communications and move toward Richmond, I would press closely to him, fight him, if a favorable opportunity should present, and at least try to beat him to Richmond on the inside track. I say try. If we never try, we shall never succeed. If he makes a stand at Winchester, moving neither north nor south, I would fight him there, on the idea that if we cannot beat him when he bears the wastage of coming to us, we can never beat him when we bear the wastage of going to him. This proposition is a simple truth, and it is too important to be lost sight of for a moment. In coming to us, he tenders us an advantage which we should not waive. We should not so operate as to merely drive him away. As we must beat him somewhere or fail finally, we can do it, if at all, easier near to us than far away. If we cannot beat the enemy where he now is, we never can, he again being within the entrenchments of Richmond. This patient, sensible letter had no effect on McClellan. Now, forbearing as Lincoln was as a rule, he could lose his patience in a way which it does one good to see. He lost it a few days later, when McClellan gave as a reason for inaction that his cavalry horses had sore tongues. I have just read your dispatch about sore-tongued and fatigued horses, Lincoln telegraphed. Will you pardon me for asking what the horses of your army have done since the Battle of Antietam that fatigues anything? Yet even for this telegram he half-apologized two days later. Most certainly I intend no injustice to any, and if I have done any I deeply regret it. To be told after more than five weeks total inaction of the army, and during which period we have sent to the army every fresh horse we possibly could, amounting in the whole to 7,918, that the cavalry horses were too much fatigued to move, presents a very cheerless, almost hopeless prospect for the future, and it may have forced something of impatience in my dispatch. On the first day of November, McClellan crossed the Potomac. But four days later, the president, acting on a curious, half-superstitious ultimatum, which he had laid down for his own guidance, removed the general. He had decided, Mr. Hay heard him say, that if McClellan permitted Lee to cross the Blue Ridge and place himself between Richmond and the Army of the Potomac, there would be a change in generals. Four days later, Lee did this very thing— and Lincoln, unmoved by the fact that McClellan had, at last, begun the movement south, kept the compact with himself. But who should be asked to take the command of the army? There was no man whose achievements made him preeminent, no one whom the country demanded as it had Fremont and McClellan. The choice seemed to be confined to the corps commanders of the Army of the Potomac, and General Ambrose Burnside was ordered to relieve McClellan. Lincoln had been watching Burnside closely for many months. Indeed, he had already twice asked him to take the command, but Burnside, believing in McClellan and mistrusting his own fitness, had refused. With an anxious heart, the President watched the new commander as he followed Lee into Virginia and took a position north of the Rappahannock, facing Lee, who was now at Fredericksburg, on the south of the river. Burnside at once made ready for battle— and Lincoln, wanting as always to see with his own eyes the army's condition, went down the Potomac on November 27th to Aquia Creek, where Burnside met him and explained his plan. The president thought it risky, and in a letter to Halleck suggested a less hazardous substitute. Both Burnside and Halleck objected, however, and the president yielded. Burnside began his movement on December 9th. During the 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th, the President studied intently the yellow tissue telegrams in his drawer at the telegraph office, telling where troops were crossing the river and what positions had been gained. At half past four o'clock on the morning of the 14th, a message was received saying that the troops were all over the river. Loss, 5,000. This meant that the final struggle was at hand. About eight o'clock that morning, Mr. Lincoln appeared at the telegraph office of the War Department in dressing gown and carpet slippers. Mr. Rosewater, the present editor of the Omaha Bee, was receiving messages, and he says that the President did not leave the room until night. Secretary Stanton, Major Eckert, and Captain Fox were the only other persons present, as he remembers. The excitement and suspense were too great for anyone to eat, and it was not until evening that the secretary sent out for food for the watchers. All day the 15th the anxiety lasted. Then, at a quarter past four o'clock on the morning of the 16th, came news of a retreat. I have thought it necessary, telegraphed Burnside from the north of the Rappahannock, to withdraw the army to this side of the river. Slowly the dreadful returns came in over ten thousand men dead and wounded two thousand more missing the government did its utmost to conceal the disaster but gradually it came out and again the heart-sick country heaped its anger on the president lincoln's faith in burnside was sorely tried by the battle of fredericksburg reports which soon came to him of the discouragement of the army and the disaffection of the corps commanders alarmed him still further and he refused, without Halleck's consent, to allow Burnside to make a new movement which the latter had planned. But Halleck declined, at this critical moment, to accept the responsibilities of his position as General-in-Chief, and to give a decision. Lincoln felt his desertion deeply. "'If, in such a difficulty as this,' he wrote Halleck, "'you do not help. You fail me precisely in the point for which I sought your assistance.' You know what General Burnside's plan is, and it is my wish that you go with him to the ground, examine it as far as practicable, confer with the officers, getting their judgment and ascertaining their temper. In a word, gather all the elements for forming a judgment of your own, and then tell General Burnside that you do approve or that you do not approve his plan. Your military skill is useless to me if you will not do this. The passing weeks only added to the disorganization of the Army of the Potomac, and on January 25th, the president ordered General Joseph Hooker to relieve General Burnside. Stanton and Halleck were not satisfied with the selection. They wanted the next experiment tried on a western general who was promising well, General W.S. Rosecrans. That Lincoln himself saw danger in the appointment is evident in the letter he wrote to General Hooker. "'General, I have placed you at the head of the Army of the Potomac. "'Of course I have done this upon what appear to me to be sufficient reasons, "'and yet I think it best for you to know that there are some things "'in regard to which I am not quite satisfied with you. "'I believe you to be a brave and skilful soldier, which of course I like. "'I also believe you do not mix politics with your profession, in which you are right.' You have confidence in yourself, which is a valuable if not an indispensable quality. You are ambitious, which, within reasonable bounds, does good rather than harm. But I think that during General Burnside's command of the army you have taken counsel of your ambition and thwarted him as much as you could, in which you did a great wrong to the country and to a most meritorious and honorable brother-officer. I have heard, in such a way as to believe it, of your recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain successes can set up dictators. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship." The government will support you to the utmost of its ability, which is neither more nor less than it has done, and will do, for all commanders. I much fear that the spirit which you have aided to infuse into the army, of criticizing their commander and withholding confidence from him, will now turn upon you. I shall assist you, as far as I can, to put it down." Neither you nor Napoleon, if he were alive again, could get any good out of an army while such a spirit prevails in it. And now, beware of rashness. Beware of rashness, but with energy and sleepless vigilance, go forward and give us victories. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln Hooker had a manly heart, and the President's words appealed to the best that was in him. Noah Brooks tells how he heard the general read the letter soon after its receipt. "'He finished reading it,' writes Mr. Brooks, "'almost with tears in his eyes, "'and as he folded it and put it back in the breast of his coat, he said, "'That is just such a letter as a father might write to a son. "'It is a beautiful letter, "'and although I think he was harder on me than I deserved, "'I will say that I love the man who wrote it.'" By the first of April, the Army of the Potomac had been put into splendid form by General Hooker. An advance against the Army, still entrenched at Fredericksburg, where Burnside had engaged him, was contemplated, but prior to the battle a grand review of the troops before the President was planned. It was on Saturday, April 4th, that Lincoln left Washington, by a river steamer, for Hooker's headquarters at Falmouth, Virginia. A great snowstorm began that night, and it was with serious delay and discomfort that the review was conducted. Difficult as it was, the President was indefatigable in his efforts to see all the army, to talk with every officer, to shake hands with as many men as possible. A strange foreboding seemed to possess him. Hooker's confident assurance, I am going straight to Richmond if I live, filled him with dread. It's about the worst thing I have seen since I have been down here, he told Noah Brooks, who was one of the party. When he watched the splendid column of that vast army of a hundred thousand, there was no rejoicing in his face. The defeats of two years, the angry clamor of an unhappy north, the dead of a dozen battlefields seemed written there instead. So haggard was his countenance that even the men in the line noticed it. Ira Seymour Dodd, in one of his graphic Civil War stories, has described this very review, and he tells how he and his comrades were almost awe-stricken by the glimpse they caught of the President's face. As we neared the reviewing stand, the tall figure of Lincoln loomed up. He was on horseback, and his severely plain black citizen's dress set him in bold relief against the crowd of generals in full uniform grouped behind him distinguished men were among them, but we had no eyes save for our revered President, the Commander-in-Chief of the Army, the brother of every soldier, the great leader of a nation in its hour of trial. There was no time save for a marching salute. The occasion called for no cheers. Self-examination, not glorification, had brought the Army and its chief together." but we passed close to him so that he could look into our faces, and we into his. None of us to our dying day can forget that countenance. From its presence we marched directly onward toward our camp, and as soon as Root's step was ordered, and the men were free to talk, they spoke thus to each other. Did you ever see such a look on any man's face? He is bearing the burdens of the nation. It is an awful load. It is killing him." Yes, that is so. He is not long for this world. Concentrated in that one great, strong, yet tender face, the agony of the life-or-death struggle of the hour was revealed as we had never seen it before. With new understanding we knew why we were soldiers. A day after Lincoln left the army, but before going he said to Hooker and his generals, "'Gentlemen, in your next battle put in all your men.' The next battle occurred on May 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Over 37,000 men were left out of the fight, and on May 5th the army again withdrew north of the Potomac. The news of the retreat reached the President soon after noon of May 6th. About three o'clock in the afternoon, says Noah Brooks, the door opened and Lincoln came into the room. I shall never forget that picture of despair. He held a telegram in his hand, and as he closed the door and came toward us, I mechanically noticed that his face, usually sallow, was ashen in hue. The paper on the wall behind him was of the tint known as French Grey, and even in that moment of sorrow and dread expectation, I vaguely took in the thought that the complexion of the anguished president's visage was almost exactly like that of the wall. He gave me the telegram, and in a voice trembling with emotion said, Read it. News from the Army. The dispatch was from General Butterfield, Hooker's chief of staff, addressed to the War Department, and was to the effect that the Army had been withdrawn from the south side of the Rappahannock and was then safely encamped in its former position. The appearance of the President, as I read aloud these fateful words, was piteous. Never, as long as I knew him, did he seem to be so broken up, so dispirited, and so ghost-like. Clasping his hands behind his back, he walked up and down the room, saying, My God, my God, what will the country say? What will the country say? This consternation was soon mastered. Lincoln's almost superhuman faculty of putting disaster behind him and turning his whole force to the needs of the moment came to his aid. Ordering a steamer to be ready at the wharf, he summoned Halleck, and at four o'clock the two men were on their way to Hooker's headquarters. The next day, the president had the situation in hand and was planning the next move of the Army of the Potomac. The country could not rally so quickly from the blow of Chancellorsville from every side came again the despairing cry, Abraham Lincoln, give us a man. But Lincoln had no man of whom he felt surer than he did of Hooker, and for two months longer he tried to sustain that general. A fundamental difficulty existed, however, what Lincoln called a family quarrel, an antagonism between Halleck and Hooker, which caused constant friction Since the beginning of the war, Lincoln had been annoyed, his plans thwarted, the cause crippled by the jealousies and animosities of men. So far as possible, the president tried to keep out of these complications. I have too many family controversies, so to speak, already on my hands to voluntarily, or so long as I can avoid it, take up another, he wrote to General McClernand once. You are now doing well. Well for the country and well for yourself, much better than you could possibly be if engaged in open war with General Halleck. But his letters and telegrams show how, in spite of himself, he was continually running athwart somebody's prejudice or dislike. The trouble between Halleck and Hooker reached a climax at a critical moment. On June 3rd, Lee had slipped from his position on the Rappahannock and started north, Hooker had followed him with great skill. Both armies were well north of the Potomac and a battle was imminent when, on June 27th, angered by Halleck's refusal of a request, Hooker resigned. During the days when Hooker was chasing Lee northward, the president had spent much of his time in his room at the telegraph office. Mr. Chandler, who was on duty there, relates that one of his most constant inquiries was about the 5th Corps under General Meade. "'Where's Meade? What's the 5th Corps doing?' he was asking constantly. He had seen, no doubt, that he might be obliged to displace Hooker, and was observing the man whom he had in mind for the position. At all events, it was Meade whom he now ordered to take charge of the army.' The days following were ones of terrible suspense at Washington. The North, panic-stricken by the Southern invasion, was clamoring at the President for a hundred things. Among other demands was a strongly supported one for the recall of McClellan. Colonel A.K. McClure of Philadelphia, who, among others, urged Lincoln to restore McClellan, says in a letter to the writer, When Lee's army entered Pennsylvania in June 1863, there was general consternation throughout the state. The Army of the Potomac was believed to be very much demoralized by the defeat of Chancellorsville, by want of confidence in Hooker as commander, and by the apprehension that any of the Corps commanders, called suddenly to lead the army just on the eve of the greatest battle of the war, would not inspire the trust of the soldiers. The friends of General McClellan believed that he could best defend the state. He was, admittedly, the best organizer in our entire army, and preeminently equipped as a defensive officer, and they assumed that his restoration to the command would bring in immense democratic support to the administration. Lincoln's view of the matter is fully shown by the telegram which he sent in reply to one from Colonel McClure, urging McClellan's appointment. War Department, Washington City, June thirtieth, 1863. A. K. McClure, Philadelphia. Do we gain anything by opening one leak to stop another? Do we gain anything by quieting one clamor merely to open another, and probably a larger one? A. Lincoln. Three days after his appointment, Meade met Lee at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, and after three days of hard fighting, defeated him. During these three terrible days, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of July, Mr. Lincoln spent most of his time in the telegraph office. He read every telegram with the greatest eagerness, says Mr. Chandler, and frequently was so anxious that he would rise from his seat and come around and lean over my shoulder while I was translating the cipher. After the Battle of Gettysburg, the president urged me to pursue Lee and engage him before he should cross the Potomac. His anxiety seemed as great as it had been during the battle itself, and now, as then, he walked up and down the floor, his face grave and anxious, wringing his hands and showing every sign of deep solicitude. As the telegrams came in, he traced the positions of the two armies on the map, and several times called me up to point out their location, seeming to feel the need of talking to someone. Finally, a telegram came from Meade saying that under such and such circumstances, he would engage the army at such and such a time. Yes, said the president bitterly, he will be ready to fight a magnificent battle when there is no enemy there to fight. Perhaps Lincoln never had a harder struggle to do what he thought to be just than he did after Meade allowedly to escape across the Potomac. He seems to have entertained a suspicion that the general wanted Lee to get away, for in a telegram to Simon Cameron on July 15th, he says, I would give much to be relieved of the impression that Meade, Couch, Smith, and all, since the battle at Gettysburg, have striven only to get Lee over the river without another fight. The day before, he wrote Meade a letter in which he put frankly all his discontent My dear General, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. If you could not safely attack Lee last Monday, how can you possibly do so south of the river? when you can take with you very few more than two-thirds of the force you then had in hand. It would be unreasonable to expect, and I do not expect that you can now effect much. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. I beg you will not consider this a prosecution or persecution of yourself. As you had learned that I was dissatisfied, I have thought it best to kindly tell you why. He never sent the letter. Thinking it over in his dispassionate way, he evidently concluded that it would not repair the misfortune and that it might dishearten the general. He smothered his regret and went on patiently and loyally for many months in support of his latest experiment. But while in the East the President had been experimenting with men, in the West a man had been painfully and silently making himself. His name was Ulysses S. Grant. The president had known nothing of his coming into the army. No political party had demanded him. Indeed, he had found it difficult at first, West Point graduate though he was, and great as the need of trained service was, to secure the lowest appointment. He had taken what he could get, however, and from the start he had always done promptly the thing asked of him. More than that, he seemed always to be looking for things to do. It was these habits of his that brought him at last, in February of 1862, to the command of a movement in which Lincoln was deeply interested. This was the capture of Forts Henry and Donelson near the mouth of the Tennessee River. Our success or failure at Fort Donelson is vastly important, and I beg you to put your soul in the effort, Lincoln wrote on February 16th to Halleck and Buell, then in command of Missouri and Tennessee. While the president was writing his letters, Grant, in front of Fort Donaldson, was writing a note to the Confederate commander, who had asked for terms of capitulation. No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately on your works. To the harassed president at Washington, these words must have been like a war cry. He had spent the winter in a vain effort to inspire his supposed great generals with the very spirit breathed in the words and deeds of this unknown officer in the West. Grant was now made a major general and entrusted with larger things. He always brought about results, but in spite of this, the president saw there was much opposition to him. For a long period, he was in partial disgrace. But Lincoln must have noticed that, while many other generals, whose achievements were less than Grant's, complained loudly and incessantly at reprimands, snubbing, the president called it, Grant said nothing. He stayed at his post doggedly, working his way inch by inch down the Mississippi. Finally, in July 1862, when General Halleck was called to Washington as General-in-Chief, Grant was put at the head of the Armies of the West. There was much opposition to him. Men came to the president urging his removal. Lincoln shook his head. I can't spare this man, he said. He fights. Many good people complained that he drank. Can you tell me the kind of whiskey? asked Lincoln. I should like to send a barrel to some of my other generals. Nevertheless, the president grew anxious as the months went on. The opening of the Mississippi was, after the capture of Richmond, the most important task of the war. The wrong man there was only second in harm to the wrong man on the Potomac. Was Grant a wrong man? Little could be told from his telegrams and letters. General Grant is a copious worker and fighter, said Lincoln later, but he is a very meager writer or telegrapher. Finally, The President and the Secretary of War sent for a brilliant and loyal newspaper man, Charles A. Dana, and asked him to go to Grant's army, to act as the eyes of the government at the front, said the President. His real mission was to find out for them what kind of a man Grant was. Dana's letters soon showed Lincoln that Grant was a general that nothing could turn from a purpose. That was enough for the President. He let him alone and watched. When, finally, Vicksburg was captured, he wrote him the following letter. It may be called his first recognition of the general. Washington, July thirteenth, 1863. Major General Grant. My dear general, I do not remember that you and I ever met personally. I write this now as a grateful acknowledgement for the almost inestimable service you have done the country. I wish to say a word further. When you first reached the vicinity of Vicksburg, I thought you should do what you finally did. March the troops across the Neck, run the batteries with the transports, and thus go below. And I never had any faith, except a general hope that you knew better than I, that the Yazoo Pass expedition and the like could succeed. When you got below and took Port Gibson, Grand Gulf, and vicinity, I thought you should go down the river and join General Banks. And when you turned northward, east of the Big Black, I feared it was a mistake. I now wish to make the personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln. Grant was busy with new movements before this letter reached him. Indeed, as soon as Vicksburg capitulated, he had begun getting ready to do something else— So occupied was he, he did not even take time to write his plans to the government, asking Mr. Dana to do it for him. Three and a half months later, after the Army of the Cumberland had been defeated at Chickamauga and had retired into Chattanooga, Grant was called to its relief. In a month, the Confederates were driven from their positions on the ridges above him, and East Tennessee was saved. There was no longer in Lincoln's mind a doubt that at last he had found the man he wanted. In the winter following, 63 and 64, after much discussion, Congress revived the grade of Lieutenant General in the Army purposely for Grant's benefit, and on February twenty-ninth, Lincoln nominated the General to the rank. He proceeded at once to Washington, where on March ninth the President and the General met for the first time. What did the President want him to do? Grant asked. Take Richmond, was the President's reply. Could he do it? If he had the troops, Grant answered. The President promised them. Two months later, Grant had reorganized the Army of the Potomac and had started at its head for the final march to Richmond. End of Section 9